and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and showcase qualities of planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei. I'm a transformational coach, a breathwork teacher, and I'm committed to a world that allows people from all walks of life to thrive. I'm your host and creator of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Pandora Thomas. Pandora is a passionate global citizen who works as a caregiver for her mother and globally as a teacher, writer, designer, and speaker. Pandora's work emphasizes the benefits of applying ecological principles to social design. She's the co-founder of the Black Permaculture Network, working for six years with Toyota to design and serve as a coalition member of the Toyota Green Initiative, which supported African-Americans in understanding the benefits of adopting a sustainable lifestyle. She's also co-designing, teaching with and directing Pathways to Resilience, a permaculture and social entrepreneur training program that worked with men and women returning home after incarceration and working with the Urban Permaculture Institute in Marin City, supporting a people's planning process. Stoked and excited to talk all things permaculture and social design with you. Welcome to the show, Pandora. Thank you. Do I pronounce your name Julian? Julian. Okay. You can say Julian. I'm, this oh, is so funny. It's coming up, right. coming up lately again, but, but Julian is my preferred way. It's the German way to pronounce it. Yes. Some Americans stumble over it and have, have problems and make all kinds of Spanish sounding uh, <laughs> approaches. Julian, not that hard. Try it out. Not that hard. Thank you, Julian. Not that hard. Yeah. No, it's Pandora. It's, it's a pleasure to be here on the line with you and have you in for this, this interview. I, I'm fascinated by how you, you've been really dedicating your life to social design and helping create bridges where there's a lot of disconnection. Mm, that's a good way to put it. So maybe, maybe start somewhere there at the beginning. What was your call to purpose? Like, where did you just start seeing this is what's up and I'm going to dedicate my life and energy to it? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Julian. Um, and thank you for all the people listening or watching, just giving your time to this and whatever it is you're doing for our planet and for our collective species. Um, that's an interesting question. I actually feel like the minute I was born, my mother says that she named me Pandora because she has learned about Pandora's box and this idea of gifts of all. And my auntie also says that she had heard the name Pandora and so synchronously my mother and my aunt thought about that name for me. So I actually, um, I, I credit a lot of what I am and who I am to my ancestors, human and non-human. So again, I feel like being born in this body and in this way was intentional so that I could have to go through the things that I'm going through to be able to be set up um, to be of service to life and death in the ways I am. Um, and so birth, I would say that, birth into an African and African indigenous family. My parents, well, my mother was a sharecropper in the South and moved from Chiraw, South Carolina at age three. And as a sharecropper, she they were forced to do all the things that we call, well, I heard recently, you're not supposed to use the word homesteader because it's some problem with that word, whatever. The whole idea of going back to the land and my family had to do that. They 
had to grow food for the person that owned the land and then they had to have side mm -hmm. hustles. They were sharecroppers, which there's nothing sharing about that um, amongst other things. And so when they left that to move north, um, you know, my uncle was a tobacco farmer, to a steel town, Farrell, Pennsylvania, that's where I was born. And magically, my mother still kept that connection to non-humans, to the earth and her mm -hmm. passion when I was brought into this world um, in this small teal, steel town of 6,000 people, that's what she instilled in me, um, this care for the earth, um, like the principles, actually the permaculture principles, earth care, people care and fair share. Those don't just belong permaculture. Those are like principles of life. Um, I was active in my church. So I also being raised with um, a belief that there's something bigger than me something larger than me that I'm in service to. I can credit my church. I went to a Catholic school. I went to a Baptist church, but attended a Catholic school. So again, Catholicism, even with any of its woes, still imbues this sense of um, being of service and relationship to goodness. Um, so in my small little town, my little family, that kind of generational, my mom trying to imbue it in me, my dad too. Um, and then my family, I was around. I feel that I was always set up to just first know that there's no such thing as nature and then us, but like mm -hmm. humans are an animal on the planet. <laughs> so just like my cats, the birds, and you know, we are a trajectory of species on this living ball. And even though my mother didn't use that language, that's how she lived. And so mm -hmm. witnessing her, I mean, she loves everything. Baby, she's the person that stops at everybody. Cute old people, <laughs> you know what I mean? When I was yeah. a kid, frustrated me and my sisters were like we gotta talk to everybody but now I know there was this level of just her being in relation with the world and it's just a miracle because she grew up on a sharecropper farm I mean the crazy stories of sharing underwear and stuff here I mean they was pole they weren't P-O-O-R they were pole like and was pole when they moved um to Farrell so that she still my grandmother instilled in her. So I would say my ancestors, my mother, my family instilled in me this sense and all the, all the quote permaculture ethics that are beyond permaculture. And that set me on a trajectory. Then one other piece I'll share is, you know, being in a dark skinned body and a what's called female body, then you kind of get treated ways. And so growing up when, you know, people would, I just remembered that this guy in second grade used to call me Melba Toast. I'm laughing now, but that was the most, it was horrible. Mm. I think we learned about Melba Toast as a thing in class. And then because I was dark skin, and I might've even been darker when I was younger because I was outside in the sun a lot. <laughs> but um, I got picked on for being dark skin. And it's really deep because Vince Verneal, I'll never forget. Vince Verneal used to call me Melba Toast and the other people picked on me for my skin color. So right away, I was like, uh oh, wait, here I am, this being that loves all things, but all things don't love me for mm. who I am. So starting to feel mistreatment, I do remember I was like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try to not be that way. I don't know what way to be, but I'm gonna try to not look at someone and find the reason to pick on them. I just, that definitely resonated and Again, because of my dark skin, I think I was set up to try to advocate for what you said at the beginning. Like, how do we create a world that everyone and all things can thrive? It is possible. 
So, yeah. It is absolutely possible. It, it takes a lot of courage depending on yeah. what level of privilege we grow up with. And even when we grow up with a lot of privilege, it still takes the courage to wake up every morning and look at it and look at what's up and look at the way we practice disconnection mm -hmm. systemically as a people, right? And, and step back into connection. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. How does that process of courage and, and just optimism work for you? Because I can, I can only imagine how, you know, if you got that kind of contrast as a child already, how, you know, that might discourage a lot of people to, 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 to share who they are, to show how beautiful they truly are. And so for you, what would you say that that process of courage and, and optimism looks like? Is it something that you like that just naturally in me, or is it something that you had to, to work on well yeah no so uh even with a very strong and loving mother um i can say i've tried to kill myself three times and i've been committed to mental institutions for being depressed just about being on this planet and there's a lot around and it's coming out now mental illness that because so much of the studies was done with white men <laughs> there was a lot of mental health that didn't even accurately name or support the multiple things I think I was really dealing with. A disconnection from the earth, mm. a disconnection from um, the reinforcement societally of that I am perfect and good just the way I am, not seeing other folks like me, you know, all the whole litany list of things. Um, so yeah, I remember I, my first time I was 11, I took a bunch of vitamins and I can laugh about it now because as I'm telling you the story, this is what's gotten me here. Um, and then the second, you know, so I had a second and a third time. And after the third time, I think it was 27 or 28, I got out of the mental hospital. It was here in Berkeley. And I was like, you know what? This is it. I am going to the earth. And I quit my job and I became a naturalist. Wow. And here's the best part of the story. I had been working for uh, something where we had a trip planned for us. And the trip was run by a bunch of naturalists. It was up in Calistoga and all the naturalists were these white kids and they led us on a ropes course. You know what a ropes course is, right? Mm -hmm. Like where you use ropes. And I just remember looking, first of all, they were all really cute, hippie white kids, but they were so happy doing games. And I had been an elementary school teacher and an after school program director at the time. And so, I remember I said to one of them, what exactly do you guys do? And they're like, we're naturalists. We're outdoor educators. And, you know, and I was like, I think I'm supposed to be working in, in with the earth. And I think, and they're like, okay, come work for us, naturalists at large. And that's what I did. I literally, and so I was apparently back then, I was told I was one of the second black people to work for this naturalist at large organization had 31 spots throughout California where they sent these naturalists to, and so I quit my regular job. I started working at naturalists at large and I started working in the forest and at the ocean and leading trips. And it was like, okay, this, it's not quite right because it's still a bunch of white people and there was all sorts of crazy dynamics, but it was like, even in the redwoods, my skin felt, like I'd look at my skin and I'd be like, I'm the same color as a tree. Like, it was deep. I was like, this, this is where I know I am my most vibrant self. Um, and so a few things had happened in my life before that, but I can honestly say, I think that's called your Saturn 
return. Yeah, yeah. So when you're about that, 27, 28 years yeah. old and Saturn is in the same constellation then it is. Yeah. So that trajectory catapulted me to just clarity that, okay, I need to, even when I'm saddest and most frustrated, go to the trees because the trees see me literally as like an oxygen breathing, weirder version of themselves. They don't, <laughs> I'm serious, like the. Yeah, I hear you. The critters and even the people, when you're out there, we see each other differently. And then as I studied more, you know, I was a Rasta. This is what a lot of Afro indigenous practices are saying. And when I learned more about permaculture, it was like, okay, here's a design system that I could apply to help us redesign our lives in alignment with that idea. So there isn't a job that you're indoors and there's no connection. Like people of African ancestry, we used to spend most of our time outdoors. Y'all Germans probably too. So permaculture- All of us used to do, right? Yeah. It feel, permaculture as a design system encourages us to almost design the, out, the inside out. Like, what does it look like when our relationships are not just in these boxes, but the world becomes co-designed and I wanted to be able to offer that as healing place for all the social ills we experience. Does that make wow. sense? Wow, it makes so much sense. And you know, it, I can feel how that brought the life force, the optimism, the courage back to your life. And for me too, like the medicine is the forest and the trees themselves. Like I, I also live at the ocean, which is really helpful to, you know, humble us down because of its sheer power. Mama Ocean has this like, ferocious love right and, and so I feel like it helps us to to take off our thinking cap and just surrender for a bit which then in turn gets us so much more connected to each other I want to highlight something though Pandora you said I quit my regular job and I've heard many many people say that and I've said it myself sometimes what gives us the impression that an office job or a job that is like maybe more in a uh, now like classical modern pathway is a regular job how is that a regular job and working outdoors as an educator is not a regular job well one answer is the pay scale <laughs> to be real um i went from making and it's funny because my regular job literally was also a dream i was running an after school program for 40 to 50 young black kids in berkeley <laughs> where yeah. i was having them do circus arts and gardening and i mean it was amazing but it's still I was on a computer. I wasn't teaching them the things. I was like the program director. Mm, okay. So I think I was making maybe 30,000, which that's almost 20 years ago in Berkeley. That's affordable then for my lifestyle. So for me, when I say regular job, it was like assistant checks that were enough. To, you know, they were three times more enough mm. to pay for any. Being a naturalist, I made six fifty an hour. And I think, and then this is the other thing, naturalists, you live, you don't live anywhere you, or you can, but if they tend to live on the side, you know, and you make less, you earn less money, which is sad because they're literally teaching people about the earth. And like you said, facilitating relationships, you know, kayaking. So that was a sad moment because I remember thinking, okay, so I have to leave making money. <laughs> to and i've also healed that thinking it took mm -hmm. about 20 years but there was in my mind like you said a clear the trajectory of teaching in this structured thing 
that doesn't allow for freedom and for me to always be me is not healing. And I had to accept a more non-normal routine that allowed for the flow of creativity. Maybe I'll put it that way and less bosses and paperwork and you know what I'm- I totally hear you. I, I find it just so interesting to hear people unpack about that in, in their own words because everyone can relate to how a certain job, a certain environment, a certain way of being makes them feel, right? Yeah. And, and, and so maybe not everyone needs to be in the forest or outdoors 24 seven, but at the same time, it is, as you said, we're a, we're a mammal on planet earth. We're, we're, we're consciousness in the body of, of, of human, but, but we're, we're still in the mammal. And so we're an animal like all the other animals around and that's <laughs> what gives us joy. I want to hear quite a bit more about like the pathways to resilience and like, you know, the permaculture kind of programs uh, that, that you did both with, with formerly incarcerated people, but also just with, you know, um, African-American communities at large. And I want to preface that with one of the definitions that I really enjoy about permaculture, which this is this idea of a permanent culture, a culture that is resilient in itself, that is, in resonance with life, right? And learns from that resonance with life and nature, not as an other, but nature as us being part of it. And so tell us about these programs that you're, you've designed, you're running, you've, you're engaging people and kind of bringing them back into being seen and reconciled as, as worthy, valuable human beings. Well, before I start, I do, I wanna just name something called the nonprofit industrial complex. <laughs> because I'm going to touch on the challenge of it um, that I'm in the middle of right now. And I think I just need to say that. So there's something called the non the, the um, nonprofit industrial complex. And for me, it means we have literally created nonprofit organizations to quote, help solve the problems, but we've created them so that they have to always be around. So it's like, you know, say you had an issue and you were going to a therapist. The idea is not that you keep having the issue. Eventually you'd be like, therapist, I need to not be seeing you anymore, right? Yeah. Nonprofits, it's so deep because everything nonprofits are solving for are things we think we're going to solve for, right? Like we're going to end, but we've created this wheel of, and it's an industrial complex because it goes with philanthropy. It's like a whole complex of industries that support it. So I just want to say that. So when I left teaching, um, and that was that iteration, when I left that after school program and became a naturalist, um, I would say I went on this trajectory of like, oh my gosh, so wh wh what does it look like then to be of service to my purpose, which felt like one, um, how do the people most impacted by something be the ones to design for the solutions? Um, like I said, when I was younger, I didn't even know how to speak up for blackness, for being beautiful, for a little dark skin, you know, like the things that affected me. I'm sure you had the same. Um, our steel town shut down when I was, our steel mill that my dad had worked at for 35 years shut down like that. And it decimated our little town. We didn't even know how to, it's like, why didn't we organize like laborers did before and take it over and, you know what I mean? And so totally. that 
there's so when I kind of left the after school job and I was like a naturalist, this started to be like, okay, what would it look like to be the planner or the designer? So as I was learning about permaculture, I also went to school to be a planner. <laughs> Cause I was like, oh, maybe if I'm a planner, I get to help people plan the decisions that create the infrastructure for the world we live in. Maybe that's the way to go, right? Because I could not afford to be a natural. Like, honestly, there was a point where I was like, actually, I can't afford to be making six barbecues because I don't have the family that all those other people have. And when I get to school to be a planner, I was like, oh, <laughs> this is not, planners don't work with people. <laughs> planners, and even in my planning program, which I want to credit Julian Ajiman, he teaches at Tufts, he helped us to understand planners actually need to be trained as community organizers and as lawyers. And they need to be the generalized specialists because planners also need to be organizing the people in the community to help prioritize the, you know what I'm saying? So that wasn't happening in the planning. Absolutely. So I left planning <laughs> um, and decided, okay, I think maybe I just need to fall into this whole permaculture thing and know there's not really a job around that, but life just kept reiterating, you know what, learn from the principles and patterns of life that the earth teaches you constantly every day. So then I came back to the Bay Area at this, I was at Tufts in Boston. Um, when I came back to the Bay Area, I, that's when I started to think, okay, what does it look like to apply permaculture design? And other people had been asking these questions to solve for many of these issues instead of just thinking about it in a planning, you know, what does it look like to equip people with a design system that claims that's what it's about, permaculture? Um, I should also quickly say in my small town, a lot of my family members were incarcerated. So that was another thing I had seen. So to work with formerly incarcerated people had always been something I knew, why? Because that's my family. So when I came back to the Bay Area and started to seed the work, I was hired at this organization called Global Exchange. And Global Exchange, I don't know if you've heard of them, um, but a lot of their work was doing this bridge work. Um, they would have delegations to Cuba. They were one of the only organizations that took people to Cuba. They also had stores that sold fair trade. And they were also trying to do more local organizing work to bring the lessons learned around global organizing to the Bay Area. So I got to start being creative and uh, we got funded for something called the Environmental Service Learning Initiative, which was literally, Yulia, bringing permaculture to eight high schools in San Francisco. Mm, wow. Two million dollars. And that was the most money. And at the time it was called Green Jobs, but we was like, we're going to do permaculture in the high schools. And I hired a staff of all people of color, mostly people of color, which another thing hadn't been happening. So again, I was trying to start seeding all the things I was learning because again, being a planner in grad school, I was like, this is what, what am I doing? I want to just do the stuff. So this job at Global Exchange allowed me to help start to design programs. And the Environmental Service Learning Initiative, and we have videos you could see, work so well because we equipped high school students to learn about climate change, think about what can I do? What's feasible for my, how is this impacting my community? And what are the strategies to use, which in essence is what permaculture talks about, 
but how am I the designer? And we're not waiting for some other nonprofit, yeah, right? Absolutely. See how it's or starting some nonprofit or some leadership yeah, or someone no. to step in. We need real people to participate in real communities all across. We're not, yeah, and we're not the future generation. Our other thing is y'all the now generation. Mm. So the environmental service learning initiative went so well, but here's where the environment, the nonprofit industrial complex came into play. We ran out of funding. <laughs> and it was $2 million for three years. It was amazing. And we were able to do all this. But then the, and it was like, wait a minute. And I'm, I, at the time, didn't see myself as a fundraiser. I'm like the designer of the programs, the teacher. So that was my first like slap in the face. Wait, <laughs> if somebody funds you for three years, what that's a, what does that mean? You know, and I didn't have answers, but that was my first taste of us designing something that was working. And it literally was like, oh, that's not what the state's funding. <laughs> we got to redirect funds. So that ended. So I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So then I left Global Exchange and Toyota reached out. And myself and a woman named Zakia Harris were working at Global Exchange together. And she had actually started a similar project um, for black youth, like the one I had talked about. And Toyota was like, look, this was 2010. We've been researching black people doing environmental stuff and your name keeps coming up. And we're launching this new Toyota Green Initiative. And the goal is how do we one, get black folks to buy the hybrid fleet? Because it turned out black women were actually buying Priuses, et cetera, but you didn't know that because most of Toyota's commercials and programming didn't highlight. And I mean, it's deep because like, it turns out black people tend to buy cars with cash. Like our spending when we do spend is more rooted in sustainable practices just for a, 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 a number of reasons. So Toyota was like, how do we start to celebrate that black people actually do make environmental choices? Of course, we want them to buy our fleet, but we also want to tap into historically black colleges and universities where basically that's the seed of the people that become the successful capitalists. You go to an HBCU, you know what an HBCU is, right? I don't, what's an HBCU? Maybe I do, but I don't know the acronym right now, yeah. It's the historically black college and universities. These are oh, okay. the places that were started because black people were like, we ain't getting treated well right, together. Right, yeah. uh -huh. yeah. So in the whole world, yeah. Yeah. Not just in the States, yeah. And at the time, graduates from HBCUs were the ones that went on to work at the Fortune 500 companies. So yeah. these are black folks, either not either with money or just on the trajectory of having money. So Toyota was like, why don't we target those black youth at those places with this campaign. So Zakia, myself, we started this um, consulting company called Earthseed. We left the nonprofit world. We were like, we're not doing that anymore. That is a wheel, funding runs out. Let's go into the for-profit. I don't know what made us think that was any better, but working with Toyota for six years, we got to travel around, mostly in the South, to these black colleges and share this idea that, you know what? The environmental movement is ours. <laughs> it's not something new. It's part of our legacy. We use this principle Sankofa, S-A-N-K-O-F-A, which is a Ghanaian principle, which means we must know from where we came from mm. in order to move forward. And so we would start by sharing with these youth, think about, first of all, Black youth, we set the tone for movements globally. Look at our music. Look at our clothes. Look at our street culture. So what would it look like if we really grounded and understood our power 
And then we would be real. We know Toyota is just doing this to get y'all to buy cars. We're doing this to empower black young people to reclaim your role. And how do you integrate the environment into designing our future? So that was our goal with the Toyota job. It, of course, was Toyota and the event, you know, their thing was about selling cars. So it only could last for so long. But what I love is that it reinforced that idea of like, you know what? It can't just be about somebody giving us grants. It has to be about how do you en enable a community to drive the solutions? We were able to speak with and empower these young folks through touring with Toyota, by the way, and famous people, they had famous people that would come because nobody's really gonna come out to see me and Zakia speak. But people came out to see me, Zakia, and there'd be like three famous black people. And then we would do the whole spiel of reclaiming our black leadership around earth practices. I would throw in permaculture, but nobody really knows what that is. But that took me, so I had done the high school program that was nonprofit, then working with Toyota, once I left the Toyota program, um, the opportunity to design pathways to resilience came about. Mm -hmm. It was like a grant was <laughs> a grant was put out because what wasn't working in California was reentry. I don't know if you have the same thing in Canada or in Germany, but basically when people come home from prison, they go into the reentry system. So we were like, look, let's start a program that uses these funds. Again, to prove what we've already proven, I proved it at Global Exchange, I proved it with Toyota, empower black and brown folks to be the designers and the leaders, then that's what we really need to see that, not someone else having to come up with the, like planners, not actually not planners, but the people as planners. So Pathways to Resilience, we got funded for a pilot yet again, and that is what I was able to help design. Working with formerly incarcerated men and women, I had been volunteering in San Quentin and the men in San Quentin said, Pandora, do this work on the outside. Take permaculture to the outside world. So when the grant came up, we designed the program. We had two cohorts. Again, it worked beyond our dreams. And then the grant ran out. Like, so you see the pattern? Like when we're dependent on everything that I've done, that I'm explaining now was so linked to being dependent on grants or Toyota's budget. And it was the same with Pathways to Resilience. After the two years pilot, they were like, okay, thanks. And we knew that, but we were like, well, let's try and see if it works anyway. And then all of the groups that partnered to put Pathways to Resilience together decided that, you know what, we're going to keep doing the work the way we're doing it and we'll infuse this. But we didn't so you're hearing my frustration with, I am frustrated with the grant cycle of we apply for philanthropy to fund us, to design these programs. And because I don't see myself as business savvy, I think that's why I've allowed myself to be on that hamster wheel. But the work I'm doing now, which I'm about to share with you, you shared the work that was really in my past when I was still kind of like mm -hmm. dependent on the nonprofit, which I still kind of a little bit, but now um, the work I'm doing, we frame it as community-driven resiliency planning. Um, and I think part of the opportunity, I'm not going to claim to have a solution, is as we're redistributing funds, how does it go away from a grant model to an ownership model? 
So in Marin City, we started something called the People's Plan. It's basically, Marin City is a African-American community in the north, north of the Bay Bridge in the, one of the most wealthy and beautiful parts of the Bay Area. It's this little black enclave created by people who came to work for the shipyards 40 years ago. It is the poorest. It has all those statistics, the highest statistics in all the horrible places you could imagine. Why? Because it's black people. Um, but it's also flooded. So it is experiencing the impacts of climate change. So we've been working with the people of Marin City, where the county hasn't even been doing this. And we've put together what's called a people's plan, which is basically a community-driven plan. They took an eight-week permaculture design course. We truncated it. And we taught them focused watershed design. So they learned about the 800-year history of Marin City. And when they learned that things like Black Panthers and like when they learned what it looked like in Marin City before development, and when they learned the trajectory of this land and that Marin City actually used to be an estuary, a wetland, so of course it floods. It's basically a bowl. All the trees have been cut from the highlands. They've been paved over the streets. The sewers are too small. And then at the bottom, they have a detention basin that's too small, okay? So- Oh, wow. Guess what? It floods. But when they learn that it's supposed to flood, because in a watershed, you have systems that support the infiltration of water into the soil. When you pave over a city, take out all the trees and greenery. So when they learn that, they are now talking about reforesting Marin City. What does it look like to bring back that landscape, the watershed? So the people's plan was not us saying, do this. We taught them about a watershed. We taught them about what Marin City used to look like. We also empowered them to understand their role in paving over and all these decisions that have been made based off of development. We've talked about some of the nonprofits that have advocated for that because they thought that in the end it would bring more economic income. But guess what it did? Or I'm sorry, economic advances. It's caused more problems. Right. It's they paved over. Yeah. So the people's plan is them redesigning Marin City, creating watersheds, building bioswells, rain gardens, um, rainwater catchment systems. They've been funded. Where COVID has impacted only the start of this, but we're about to start the training as soon as we can meet. And then they're gonna build their first resilient landscape model where they've been funded to actually start to what we're calling kind of reforesting and rewatershedding Marin City. And it's the people's plan because even though myself and the other facilitators facilitated this, we didn't come up with the ideas. We just taught them the strategies, which is what permaculture does, around redesigning a right relationship. And they actually were the ones that placed a lot of the strategies. So again, that idea that communities don't have all the answers, but when you build their capacity, teach them permaculture, they then become the designers and the planners. So that's community. Which breaks the cycle of having a leader or an entity or an NGO come in and have all the answers, yeah. This is very fascinating, Pandora, because that pain, that frustration that you felt about you know, the finance cycles there in the beginning of your story, this is very common in, in a lot of change maker circles. Oh, because okay. you know, it's, 
it's one thing to say, well, maybe I'm not that business savvy. And maybe one of the answers is to include very business savvy people into these processes. Absolutely. That's one step. But then another step is to actually understand that the system is fundamentally rigged in the favor of just more economic wheel and economic wheel, not in a, in a diverse sense, but in a very uh, linear sense of the way we've, we've practiced economy for the last two, 300 years. And so, yeah, it's, it's all about how can we access each other and access each other's resilience so we can, we can come up with more solutions. I'm so glad for everything you shared. Um, yeah, I hope it made sense. I, I wanted to share it in that trajectory so that you can yeah. see, like, again, Marin City is getting grants. I'm just be real. But the, for me, the difference is Marin City's People's Plan is starting its own organization that they work for. Like, I, I'm designing myself out of it and they won't let me, me and this guy, Kevin, from their, it's funny because they're like, no, we need you. But all the other projects I've done, I feel like I've, and I've been asked, to help solve these problems. We're equipping this community. So if the Marin City's People's Plan exists forever, it's okay, guess what? Because it's owned by Marin City people. And it's owned by the people being most impacted and they have it within them that they want to keep turning the leadership real. And so if they have to get grants, that's okay. But they're also thinking about ownership. They're like, how do we, maybe we start designing and building these so we have different income streams. Maybe um, we take over the lot that was paved over and turned into a target <laughs> and we buy that back and we start our own um, companies in that lot where we're, see what I'm trying to say? Like they're- Oh, 100%. It's like that old quote, like give a man a fish yeah. right, and you'll feed him for a day. Right. If you teach him to fish and you give him an occupation that will feed him for a lifetime. lifetime. I, I think it's a, a Chinese proverb actually, but it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, building resilience and skills, no matter which community, is something that, that needs to be in the hands of the people and not some kind of ex planning process, right? It's so I, fascinating how much energy, passion, power, and experience you have in sharing all this with us today. Well, I think, and that's why perma I, I'm still not sure what I think about permaculture community in general, but what the fact that permaculture's premise is that we are all designers as long as we learn these awareness practices and the design you know go through the permaculture but then like taking a permaculture design certificate is not the end that's literally like the baby you're starting to re and people in the west need it most because we're yeah. not living that way we've been disconnected so that's where I acknowledge, but what we're doing is calling it Afro-Indigenous permaculture now, the way we teach it, because we're literally having to show how a lot of the strategies and the practice we're talking about have African roots, like, because that's not the norm. And so for me, the social piece, I feel like that's where permaculture sometimes misses out. It paints it as it's only land-based or... But you know, I'm sure you are practicing permaculture every minute. Even the moment, what we're doing right now, those principles are imbibed in how you are approaching your work. And mm. so it's less about here's a piece of land, let's permaculture design it. It's more about here's life. <laughs> how are permaculture principles showing up throughout? And each of those slowly connects us back to the non-human world. Um, and then the last thing I wanna share is 
all of this is culminating in we're actually trying to get land um, mm -hmm. in Sonoma. So if any of your listeners want to support, and when I say we, I am doing it with uh, a collective of people rooted in Movement Strategy Center, and it will be an Afro-Indigenous farm and education center. So all the things I've talked about that I've done, you will be able to go there and experience this, but it will be led by Black people. Um, and we are honoring the First Nation community whose land we will probably be doing it on, the Pomokashaya region of Sonoma. And so just really trying, you know, we're going to, quote, get the land, but we don't want to own it. We want it to be a community trust, but make it, because there's nothing like that on the West Coast. Like Black folks don't, we own land, but we don't own like a center mm. where we can go and see ourselves and heal. And we are hoping that eventually maybe this will be community owned, but I'm the one launching it because of my privilege and all the connections I've had. Um, and so it's called the uh, Earthseed Land Project. And so if anybody's interested in it or in supporting it, we are actually trying to get someone to give us land because that's part of the reparations. Turn it over to us. Like farmers are doing that all the time. Yeah. So if you give us this land, we will entrust it and have it so that it's owned, not by anybody, but owned by the land. That's our dream. Stewarded. Like, that's amazing. We're the stewards. Yeah. And that will be my lifelong. That's what I'm transitioning into. I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be a, I want to be a land steward. Yeah. And that's literally going to be my title. <laughs> that's like so, a whole other, like very deep level of reconciliation for all of humanity is to yeah. become land stewards and resonate with the principles of life and therefore nature. Yep. Beautiful, Pandora. Thank you so much for your time. I have one last question for you. And the okay. question is um, a little bit of a deeper one. It, it requires us to zoom out on the timeline to seven generations into the future. And my question is, what's your dream for the earth? What's your vision for this planet and our species? If we take into account, uh, not just us here right now, but also us here right now, seven generations forward. Ooh. Well, I'll start with that my dream for them seven generations in the future is that the beings living at that time are having their dream. So since I won't be here, I feel that I don't even want to infringe my vision. <laughs> I just want whatever rooted and right relationship with all beings that they are all working together and that their vision and dreams in a restorative loving way is what's abound. Um, and I already see that so much. I think there's more of that on the earth than there isn't right now. I think there's way more beautiful, wonderful things happening than bad, but we're in the moment of that. I also want to say, I think that at that time I'm hoping so, okay, there's, there's COVID and there's all these things and, we're like fearing it and hating it. My prayer is that when things happen, we don't fear and hate them. We actually learn from them. So instead of talking about wiping things out and killing them and hating, you know, okay, what about if those people at that time are like, okay, here's yet another opportunity for life to teach us a lesson. What do we learn from it? Yeah, but it's painful. I get it. And it's, it might kill me, but what is the lesson not eradicate it kill it because that don't work that just makes pain grow 
So in seven generations, whenever pandemics or any horrible thing happens, my big wish is that people hold it with a love of learning the lessons in it to shift in the least harmful way for the most beings. Does that make sense? Beautiful. That was a big one for me. I'll, I'll receive that deeply. I, I, I love this permaculture idea of the right relationship. What I hear you speak about is resonance. Hmm. Resonance with life and therefore all of the uh, conclusions that come from that, right? Mm-hmm. Pandora, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your insights, some of your wisdom, sharing uh, a bit of your walk of life. Um, this was a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it was a pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And here we are again. This is your host, Julian. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights and knowledge for your life, relationships and business. If you love Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, make sure to subscribe, leave a review that really allows this podcast to reach a broader audience and share it with a friend. Let me also remind you that this podcast is currently entirely self-funded. I'm a transformational coach and mentor, a breathwork guide, and want to offer all my listeners a full 10% off my private coaching work. That is as much as $500 for a three-month program, and this discount applies for all one-on-one coaching offers, as well as some select coaching groups that I host in person. If you're curious and interested, make sure to visit the website greenplanet-blueplanet.com and click Work with Julian. Let me tell you a little bit more about my planetary purpose and leadership programs. I am committed to accelerating our human tribe, going deep into unconditioning the blocking beliefs and blind spots, enabling your gifts and clarity to amplify for aligned business, healthy relationships and overall presence with life. I have worked with hundreds of people across the world, either one-on-one in small coaching groups online or in-person at events. It is my gift to boost authentic confidence and guide you while asking the deepest questions that get you to address your dormant potential. I am an activator and catalyst for those who are ready to step into the highest version of themselves. We live in unique times and let me tell you from experience, having a coach makes a massive difference. I specialize on supporting successful entrepreneurs in unpacking their purpose and joy of life. I do work with startup entrepreneurs and artists as well and on request, I host individual breathwork mentorships. If you want to learn more, how to support the show, or suggest a guest, you can also simply send me an email. If you want to take advantage of the offer I just mentioned and claim the 10% discount, simply book a free consultation with me through my website, that is greenplanet-blueplanet.com mentorships, and mention the end of episode discount, and I'll give the discount code to you right here, right now, it's 808. That's right, that's your code right here, right now, 808. Mention it to me in our free consultation that you can book via the website and 10% are yours. That being said, thank you so much for listening today. Have yourself an amazing day. Don't forget to hit subscribe, review the show, and share it with a friend. (laughs) 